0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today.
1: So today we're talking with Dr. Steve Camper, covering a wide range of topics, including the importance of updating our models for patient education, revamping the relationship between clinicians and researchers, picking up on and addressing psychosocial considerations, and really the importance of connecting with our patients through their stories. My name is Dan Chapman, and I'm a physical therapist in Baltimore, Maryland.
2: I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well.
1: Before we get started, a little background on Dr. Steve Camper. Steve treated clinically as a physio before completing his Ph.D. at the George Institute for Global Health in 2011 and afterwards spent three years at the VU University in Amsterdam as a postdoctoral fellow. Steve published over 150 articles and presented his work over 60 times in more than 10 countries. He's a senior editor of JOSPT, and is currently a professor within the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Steve's main research interest is in musculoskeletal pain, particularly in children and adolescents. Aside from his primary research... Steve developed and writes the Evidence and Practice series in JOSPT, which focuses on helping educate clinicians on how to better understand and read PT literature in short, easily digestible summaries. We highly recommend you check it out. Steve, welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us.
2: Yeah,
3: no, thank, thank you very much.
1: Uh, before we, we really get into it, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Pain Revolution Group that I, that I know you're connected to, and they do a lot of phenomenal work in Australia focusing on not only reaching out and engaging with patients, but also providers in in how to better care for patients with chronic pain. And you recently went on the... the the Pain Revolution Outreach Tour, which I want to butcher this, it's, 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 it's not a bike ride. A bike ride definitely does not do it justice. But, but you, you do, you, you ride from town to town, educating not only clinicians, but the people there on how to reframe how we're engaging with, with this issue of chronic pain. And I would love to hear more about your experience.
3: So it's about, about, about eight, uh, 850k, so I guess that's, what, seven, 700 miles or 600 miles or something like that, over seven days. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. So going to the – so each night there's public education events in sort of regional rural towns through through Australia. And, and I think what really struck me was, you know, the, the, the general public, we are in these pretty small towns of maybe a couple of thousand people or something and there'd be 100, 150 people would turn up, you know, with, with with very little other information other than, hey, these people are coming through, we're going to talk about pain. And what the atmosphere told me was ha- the sort of care that they have access to, the, the stories they're getting, the the information they're getting, the treatment they're getting, their options, all that sort of stuff, it's just not doing the job. So there has to be a different way of doing things. I don't know, I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure what, part of what we're doing sits in that different way of doing things or, or how far that is along of of changing things for the better but this is not something which is just going to be fixed by going okay we need more services and and, and so we need to find a different way of going about it, of, of, of trying to get at the problem that these people have
1: i'm just curious as to kind of what what did you cover in these in these talks and what kind of questions did you get like what was the the response mm.
3: Often people wanted to tell their story. So often people yeah. wanted to say, "This is this is the experience I've had," and and it might be, you know, some might pick up on one of the two things that someone had said in the talk and said, "Oh, that really resonates with me." You know,
1: sounds like a an
3: emotional experience.
2: Seriously, to, to, to be, be able to experience yeah. that and then like have to leave, like that had to be yeah, such had, a...
3: uh, yeah. Look, at times definitely was. And I guess this is sort of reflects this idea that it's a broader question that I, that I guess hopefully we get to it at some point, that actually how we deliver this sort of information to people, the best way to it or the way which is going to have the most impact or make the biggest impression or make the most difference, we really don't know. And this, there's a, a kind of a growing sense, I think, that actually that starts with personal connections. Um, and and because, because, you know, you mentioned things being emotional and, and, and you yeah. know, there, there's there's a huge amount of, vulnerability that's needed to, to, yeah. to pass on you know, personal stories and that sort of thing. And so, I mean, how do we fit that into what we do clinically? Mm-hmm. Um, jo Belton talks about it. So she's a, a patient advocate. States, you may be aware of she works a little bit with, with JSPT also. And so, so she's a, someone who's speaking from her experience of, of chronic pain and has become an advocate for people with pain. And, and she really talks about, importance of biography so that's the connection through people's stories and what are the implications of that for clinicians in terms of how they, they, they're, they're delivering education or maybe delivering is the wrong word <laughs> exchanging information or whatever it is I'd encourage you i encourage the people listening to to go and have a look at the pain revolution website connect with 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 what's on there there's a far-reaching vision for for what we want to achieve
1: and going off of the, the Pain Revolution website, where, where there are a lot of resources for both clinicians and patients that are dealing with chronic pain, with your experience, do you have recommendations on not just how to have that conversation, but how to frame that for the patient?
3: I want to say that I haven't treated patients mm-hmm. in a long time, um, and, and I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in education either. I see this in, a, in a, the sort of conversation that we have around pain. And, and, and so I, if, if I understand the challenge that you're talking about correctly, that's around um, having patients not say, hey, I'm broken and this is causing my pain or there's a part of me broken. And, and so that's, that's an incredibly mechanical view of the body which is, which is implied by that. It, it's really, you know, a car, right? We've got a bit of it that's broken that has to go and get fixed and that's a view that people have uh, towards their pain. The challenge then is for a clinician to, to have a conversation which meets that patient at wherever their view is, something like bodies like mm-hmm. a car, and brings them something closer to what we think, current understanding of, of, of what pain, as imperfect as that is. And, and, and so the way that I think about this is we're updating models. And so we have a model for what we think pain is, how it works in the bottle body and you know we have this idea of receptors, and we have you know electrical communication mm-hmm. via nerves and we have processing in the brain all these are just models that we have right now there's a view of science that science is about trying to uncover some fundamental truth about the universe there's an alternate way of thinking about science which is all it's doing is updating models and the important thing about a model is whether it's better than the last model that we were using and so we can go for that car analogy to something like the alarm or threat model, and we say, okay, we think it's good to move to this model because that gives you know patients a license to move. It you know, protects them potentially for some harmful interventions, and that has all these other effects and whatever else. So the challenge clinically then is saying, okay, how do we go from a model which is held by the patient, which looks like this, to a model which looks like this? So what we actually want. To the patient to do is ultimately behave in a different way, do more activity, we want them to sleep well, blah, 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 whatever it is, but that's behaviour. So that's stuff they're doing. We think that actually what they believe about stuff is important in driving what they, uh, what, how they behave. In order to change their beliefs, we think we need to give them some mm-hmm. education. Now, an issue here which I think as clinicians really need to be have hold of strongly is Education or information is not the same as changing beliefs. So, telling someone that, okay, your MRI uh, the changes on that—that's not pain. That's not the same as changing their beliefs about what they think their pain's coming from. And then, if we get to a change of belief, they can say, "Yeah, okay, that's that's fine. Those changes on my MRI—that's uh, not damage." Still not going to go out and exercise. And and I think there can be a there's a, there's a there can be a risk in in, in making assumptions about mm-hmm. what's going to happen the information they'll change their beliefs and they'll change their behavior and and i think that's as a as, as treatment provider community we really need to be understanding and you know, getting on top of 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 those how those things link up and and um, but i
1: think it's great to say that like you know it's not just you give education x and then your job is done mm-hmm. right like that that's it's it's unfortunately not that simple because the education is a vehicle to accomplish X, but it doesn't necessarily meaning that just giving that education will do that. So I think that's a great perspective to keep.
2: Yeah, yeah. So then let's just say in a perfect scenario, we have someone who's, who's willing to listen, ready to take that on, ready to change, and ready to change their behavior. So there's recommendations now to shift the conversation away from pain and more towards function and quality of life, especially for those with chronic pain. Yeah. Um, I mean, that can be a difficult yeah. conversation to have, but what recommendations do you have for, for carrying that out based on your research?
3: I'd probably go backwards and forwards on this, you know, and be, because I think this is, this is really a live question. I think that's I think that's really tough. You know, on, on one hand, people who have chronic pain, let's say chronic back pain, which I'm most familiar with, they will likely have this, this sort of recurring course over time. That's and, and and so in that context, can we say, well get rid of your pain? I don't know. On the other hand, patient if a patient comes to a, a clinician and says, oh, okay, what I really want is you to do something about my pain, it's not really up to a clinician to say, no, that's not what you want. What you really want is to do something <laughs> is to do something about your your, your function. So so that um yeah, look, this is a really, really difficult question, and I, I sit on the fence. I think you know it, it, it's also tied up with another issue, which is uh, around how do we communicate uncertainty and provide reassurance at the same time? In complete honesty, give people assurances about what's going to happen. Right. Of course, yeah. So,
2: so I guess I thought of that when you when you brought up the model concept of we're 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 just presenting the newest model of what we have. So. Yeah. Isn't that tough to, you know, if you've been treating for a while and then you were on a model and now it's a different model and now you have to treat maybe you're treating that same patient comes back in and you're explaining that a whole different way. How would you recommend that a that a rehab clinician grapples with that?
3: I think this comes back to whether you think your views and and and, and treatments and and interactions are a living growing thing, whether they're date stamped and I think clinicians have a responsibility to change and develop over time, and that's entirely updating their models. The second issue that I think potentially makes that difficult is when people conflate their identity with what they do, and 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 so if we get too tight into, uh, you know, I'm a whatever therapist mm. that makes it really really hard to change and and, and so there's there's it's, it's a kind of a philosophical consideration I guess but and which takes some reflection I think and, and, you know and, and insight into yourself about who am I and you know how does what I do feed into to my identity or, or who I think I am um, and I think that will danger being a whatever therapist
1: it's it's hard to put in context to the patient and say that you know, what we, what we were doing before was the best that I and, and hopefully the medical community knew at that time. And what we're doing now is, is also the best that we know. And, and this also might change. And to do that and still maintain patient confidence, uh, it's, uh, it's challenging to say the least. But I like the way that you frame it as far as, as updating, updating your models.
2: Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to just like tie in the next one with this kind of training. So if now you're seeing a patient and you've, they're on board with changing their behavior and they're on board with changing the way that they think, but it, it's pretty clear that there are some psychosocial um, aspects to their pain and their symptoms and, and their rehab, what tools would you recommend for a rehab clinician to figure out who may benefit from the psychosocial interventions?
3: Uh, I, I think the first thing that I'd argue is there are always psychosocial influences and or consequences. If we take this model of pain where pain is this sort of um, interpretation of a whole heap of things that are going on, that's never divorced from um, of what's going on psychologically, emotionally and, and, and contextually, that they're always important and they're always relevant. You know, there's some relatively brief tools for something like the the Start MSK tool from um, the Kiel Group that, you know, that has a few questions about people's worries and concerns. A, that can give you an indication, okay, this is an issue, but B, it can also give you somewhere to start a conversation. And so things like in, in the pain self efficacy questionnaire, you know, there are individual items around socialising, around work, around household chores. And, and so it might be that someone's socialising, no problem at all. Work's a big issue. Household chores is sort of somewhere in the middle. That Those can be sort of a focus for, for the conversations that you have around their behaviours and, and, you know, whatever it is you think would be helpful for that person to to... to to improve their self-efficacy and, and get them to, to whatever behavior it is that uh, you mm-hmm. desire.
1: On that self-efficacy piece, with your research into low back pain and your experience with the Pain Revolution Group, have you seen successful avenues for talking about self-efficacy with patients? I and I don't want to say educated too, because that's that's yeah, yeah, not the yeah. right frame. But but ways in which clinicians can really bring that discussion to the table.
3: Yeah, yeah I understand where you're coming from. Oh, I don't know of ones which are specifically aimed at at self-efficacy. Certainly the Pain Revolution website has a whole heap of has a whole section of resources that that, that can be useful. The other thing that that people can do is 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 look at the look at the trials and the and the studies which have have used an educational intervention. And some of them, you know, they'll describe them in, in more or less detail. If there's not enough detail, one of the things that researchers really, really like is people asking them about their research so you know if, if you you find a study you read a study and it, it has an you know an education intervention that you're interested in but there's not quite enough detail in the in the in the paper send them an email and say where can I get more information can you give me you know they'll have a treatment protocol clinicians should never ever be scared about sending a researchers an e- email if you want their paper if you want their view or something if you have a question or something i would guess a very small percentage just won't reply to you but the vast majority i think will be interested to engage in a conversation with you
2: so the lancet referenced your studies in their low back pain series and one of the main takeaways from that was that we are providing more care for patients with low back pain but we're getting less response how can rehab clinicians work to break this cycle
3: this is this is really a, a personal view, and, and it's kind of an evolving thought in my mind. I suspect we're missing uh, connecting with the human. I think we're still stuck on the condition um, in the in the treating context, and so we're still treating back pains and we're still treating neck pains and we're still treating ankle sprains, and, and I'm not 100% sure what that treatment what that model of care looks like but at some point we have to get to what's going on with that person in a broader context particularly if we take on on this model of of pain where we think all these contextual and and emotional and psychological and social aspects are important we can't hope to, to 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 make a dent on on that person's pain unless we're talking about these things unless we're understanding them unless we're trying to work out and that has implications for researchers as well I mean researchers have been incredibly poor at at, at getting at understanding social influences particularly. We still haven't sorted out cause and consequence yet. Think about that. I mean, what, we're trying to treat people's pain and we've got these other things, we know they're related, we don't know whether they're a cause or a consequence. So, I mean, that has massive implications. If they're a cause, then we should be treating them. If they're a consequence, there's no use point treating them because they're not going to reverse, have an impact on the reverse of the, of the problem. So in, in the meantime, it, it, it's really understanding the person in their context. Most clinicians are on board with this biopsychosocial model and say yeah that's what I do but I think understanding what the implications of treating with that framework are is possibly not quite taken on.
2: When I was reading the, the back letter that came out very recently um, from you and like re- reading the quotes that you read and the, and the basically the summarization that they came out with, Steve it's really sad At every level, we are missing the mark. We have answers and then they're not in the policies and we have answers and clinicians don't follow them and we have answers, but patients don't follow them. How do you, number one, like how do you cope with that? And number two, how can rehab clinician like make a difference in all of this when we are like kind of failing?
3: I I often get as a researcher, I'm just a clinician or I'm just, you know, and You never hear a researcher say, I'm just a researcher. (laughs) I think it's important that that the people who are treating patients don't think of themselves as lower down on the monkey bars than people who are writing papers. Ultimately, the purpose is for those groups of people to be working together to get a better, better outcome from someone else. You have an amazing opportunity to make an impact on every single person that you see. that's many, many more people than I see um, and, and so so as a, as a clinician, you have that opportunity every day. you know if you have a positive impact on someone, that's something to be celebrated. That's bloody fantastic as far as as, as how I deal with the fact that research doesn't make it into practice, I think part of the problem is because of The model of research happens in universities and practice happens in hospitals or clinics. And as researchers, we've got used to thinking that we're the smartest people in the room and so we should decide what research we do. We should decide decide what questions we answer. And then we come out with an, an answer and we say, hey, you guys do this. I don't know if you've noticed, but people don't really like getting told what to do. And particularly by people that they don't have a relationship with. I think part of the implementation problem that we have is one that we as researchers have created ourselves and we've created that by not working with the end users. So whether those end users are patients or whether they're clinicians or whether they're policy makers, all the research we've done has been done, not all of it, most of it has been done without consultation, without engagement. You know, it, it's not surprising that the people on the ground going, hey, you have no idea what my context is. And the policymakers say the same thing and the, and the patients say the same thing and they're right. I take my share of the responsibility for creating that and I'm moving towards changing that in the way that I work.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: I'm starting up a new role which is embedded in a in the health service here in in Sydney. That's about me as a researcher with a certain set of expertise and and, and, and and knowledge using that expertise at the service of people who have problems. So whether they're policy problems or whether they're clinical problems or whether they're service delivery problems. So it's not it's not for me to provide to to come up with the question or to to provide the content expertise. It's for me to come up with a method of answering a problem, of answering a question, and that's where I think research needs to go. And I think if that happens at a broader scale, then this implementation problem, this evidence practice gap, starts to disappear. I think that the that trying to fix it afterwards is going to be a long and difficult road.
2: From every level, we need to work together.
3: absolutely yeah, I, look, i think, I think that that ha- hasn't happened in any s- structural or, or, or widespread way either. You know, the, you know the, and that's you know we're, in Australia anyway, we're sort of getting the idea of shared decision making is just sort of gaining some traction now, but you know in some ways it's it, we're, we're, we're we're taking a long time about getting beyond a pretty Sort of patriarchal model of a, of of delivering healthcare. You know, it, it it's come to be, and these sort of things. This this conversation we're having really highlights the fact that that model doesn't yeah. work. Or we, I think we can do a better, We can make a better model.
1: And so that model that really puts the 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 researcher more as the facilitator for the question rather than the originator for the question the way to go right um for those that are interested maybe in getting involved in this or learning more about this model is there is there a a a name for this approach to research
3: there's been the term embedded research which which typically means that the the research sort of sits within practice and 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 no one's really worked out how to make that happen in a sustainable and 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 useful way but there's yeah there's very There's interest in it. UK and Canada are probably leading the
1: way in that. Dr. Camper, thank you so much for coming on the JOSPT podcast. It has been fantastic Uh, chatting with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher,